two of the seven Republican votes to convict former President Trump in his impeachment trial last week came from GOP senators who had already announced their retirements. Three came from senators fresh off of re-elections to six-year terms. Only two of those conviction votes from Republicans, Utah's Mitt Romney and Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, will actually have to face voters in the next four years. Now, voters being able to hold their representatives accountable is a hallmark of democracies, right? But when our leaders become more interested in being reelected than they are in doing the right thing, our system can find itself incredibly weakened. Several major issues in our electoral system actually do more to serve the elected officials than the voters. Things like political gerrymandering, the viability of third parties, and the ridiculous amounts of money in politics. These are all issues that a majority of Americans agree need reform, but there's this desire for self-preservation that's kept any actual change from taking place in a whole bunch of these areas because no one ever wants to really drain the swamp when they're still swimming in it. But every so often, either after retiring or losing re-election, a member of Congress steps forward and speaks from experience about some of the darkest and most hypocritical parts of the American political system. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week, Politicon welcomes one of those very few, former Congressman David Jolly. After losing his seat representing Florida's 13th District to former Republican governor-turned-current Democrat Congressman Charlie Crist, David Jolly has spoken out at length about his experiences as a member of the House and about some of the systemic changes he'd like to see that might help government return to working for the people more than politicians, starting with his introduction of a brand new political party. I'll ask him about his new party, about whether or not he feels the current Republican Party can remain viable in general elections, whether he thinks the Democrat Party can keep from fracturing itself, and, of course, how the heck are we going to get along? Hey, Clay, good to be with you. Hey, good. Thank you so much for doing this. I'll tell you what, I've actually been very excited about yours, this particular episode for a few weeks now, because right before um, the folks at Politicon called me and said that they wanted to have you come on the show, I had just seen an article um, where you had been quoted, and I had saved it because I loved some of the stuff that you said, and here I am sitting here trying to find no. it. I can't exactly find it in the moment. <laughs> of course, right now, I'm put, uh, now I, I walked upstairs and I'm looking for this article, but I'd saved it because I thought, you know what? There's some st- it was an article about money in politics. Okay. And and the amount of time that you had to spend as a congressman oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. raising money, even during like the work week. And you and I think a few others, in fact, I think it was Walter Jones, who was a Republican from North from my yeah, state. Yeah, he signed Carolina, on. That's right. Right. Who had essentially said, Screw it, I'm not doing it. I ain't yeah. sitting down and raising money. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I'm sure that we wouldn't agree on in policy areas, but that's one thing that I think I would totally <laughs> sign on to because it's just, I mean, what the hell is is wrong with this whole system of, like, yeah. there are certain things that are set up to benefit the people in office more than the people who oh, they're Oh, absolutely. Right? And I, I, you know, I'm an attorney. I spent probably six months trying to extract a policy out of all the campaign finance universe that would make sense. And so this only applied to members of Congress and would have prohibited them from uh, soliciting money directly. Once you hold the public trust, I said, no more soliciting money. It wouldn't have applied Mm -hmm. to candidates uh, who didn't hold office. And it landed me on 60 Minutes for what I said to the president of CBS News. I said, look, I know you how you do your craft. I don't want to know what you're doing with the secret cameras. Just don't make me a whistleblower. (laughs) (laughs) And my wife and I, the night it aired, you know, we flew to New York to do the media stuff that day and the day after. And when I saw it, I said, oh boy, we're a whistleblower. (laughs) And that caucus didn't talk to me again. Right. Well, so, I mean, why nobody, I can't imagine, nobody likes doing that, right? Nobody in Congress wants to go across the street and do call time. Do they? No, not, there, there are a few. Actually, um, Virginia Fox loves it. 
Loves it. Loves everything about really? it. It's crazy. Yeah, well, she loves I it. I ain't trying to lie. That is a woman <laughs> who I would not answer the phone for. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but um but it can't be I mean, except for except for Fox. Yeah. Um, it can't be fun to I mean, I, listen, I ran for Congress. It was my least favorite thing in the world to do to call yeah. people and ask for money. Um, but but why can't members of why don't members of, of the House and the Senate get behind something that would that would eliminate that sort of um I mean it, it's it can sometimes be an unfair advantage to either party. It's something that I would think would help both parties if you didn't have to worry about your you know your opponent yeah. being able to outrage you. Yeah, but neither side is going to unilaterally disarm and they don't trust each other enough to reform it between the two parties. Um it really and and look in terms of younger members, you, you're instructed. I mean, everything about your progression in, in Congress goes back to the amount of money you can raise. I, when Boehner said to me, Hey, I've never done this to a freshman, but I'm going to put you on this committee. And I said, great. Thank you. Is there anything I need to do? He said, just, just take care of your responsibility across the street. That was the only thing he said, just take care of your responsibility across the street. And then Cantor came in and told me I had to raise $18,000 a day. That's the so, way it so, works. But so you're really not really doing any, I mean, considering the maximum amount that someone can donate is, you know, twenty four, twenty six hundred dollars Yeah. 18, you, you can't do anything else while you're there, can you? No. And that was the angle I took was the amount of time it takes. And I actually, I tried to make sure it was, you know, bipartisan in its criticism. There was actually a an orientation slide from the Dems in 2012, I think, with a model schedule for the week for new members. And 20 hours a week was raising money. And that's what they instructed that they're freshmen. So what happens when someone says, what happens when a Walter Jones joins as a freshman back in the 80s and says, I'm not doing this? So you immediately get sidelined and when it comes to any committee assignments, any any opportunities to introduce legislation, have your legislation heard, to amend legislation, you're basically considered, you know, persona non grata. And 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 so what you have to be able to do, and AOC is a good example, is you have to be able to create a national constituency, right? If you're going to be a disruptor, you have to create a national constituency that overcomes the leverage that your leadership holds on you. AOC did that, right? I mean, she, she sat in Pelosi's lobby as a in her first week in office and joined a protest, but she could do it because she has a national constituency that gets her back and Pelosi knows it. If you don't have that national constituency, you know, the old saying, if you're going to swing at the king, you better get him. You're, you're kind <laughs> of shoved aside. So you said something about that else, else that stuck out to me. You said that they don't trust each other enough. Is that, is that as true as, I fear it is. I mean, do you do people do, do, oh, do Mitch yeah. McConnell and Chuck Schumer truly not trust each other? Not only do they not trust each other, they don't like each other. I mean, that's that is something that has changed in our politics in the last thirty or forty years. Each of those elements, they don't trust each other and they don't like each other. We all remember the stories. You know, everybody says Reagan Tip O'Neill is an example, but uh, a former colleague of mine, or I guess a predecessor of mine in Congress from Florida, Sam Gibbons, he once quipped that bipartisanship ended with the invention of the jet airplane. And his hmm. point was, there was an era for probably almost 200 years in this country where members were elected by their community, went to Washington, did the people's work, returned home to report back on it. And while they were in Washington, they forged relationships. And they, they did not have the opportunities we have today when it comes to mass media with any cable platform you want to espouse and affirm your views. Now, social media, none of these, these tools for weaponizing our politics really existed. Today, you have those tools and you also have a schedule where members fly in in time for the first vote. They get out of town after the last vote. Sometimes they go home, but often they're going around the country raising money. And then they're coming back the next week to do it all again. You never spend time with people across the aisle. And so not only does that reflect a breakdown in bipartisanship, but it's a whole lot easier to insult your colleagues on national TV if you don't have any relationship with them, right? It's a lot harder if you've forged a relationship with somebody to go on TV and really slam them. 
did you how much of this did you know before you ran you know i i didn't know a lot of it it's funny it's one of the great misconceptions about me my my critics in politics get I like to th- think they get a couple things wrong, but but they get one major thing wrong when they try to characterize my my work in politics. So I was a staffer for the better part of my whole career before I ran. I wasn't planning on running, but for about 20 years, I had worked with Capitol Hill or in one capacity or another. So everybody assumed that I was dialed into the fundraising network, that I knew exactly how it worked, that I was aware of how leadership quashes independent voices, that that I was part of the machine, but I wasn't because when I got elected in 19 or when I, when I went to work on Capitol Hill in 95, I went to work for a member who had been elected in 1970. He represented <laughs> that very old school class. He might've even been just a class or two ahead of Pelosi. He served with Biden and when they were in their youth and he never had to do any of that. All right. First of all, he'd already been in office for 23 years. He then served another 20 while I worked with him. And so we were never part of the machine. You know, this is a guy who famously, when Bush 41 called him to ask for a vote to raise taxes, he told his chief of staff at the time, uh, tell him I'm busy. I'm taking my kids to the Mexican restaurant down the street. And he meant it. (laughs) And he meant it. Wow. Um, And when he would be asked to raise money, he'd say no. And when they would have these special retreats and, you know, take the airplane here if you raise a certain amount of money, he didn't care about that stuff. So I was never exposed to it like I was when I was elected. And my my initial race was a special election. So the eyes of the nation were on it. It was a 50-50 district. Obama had won it twice. It was held by a Republican member. And I think about $14 million was spent in 10 weeks, which at the time was Ooh, some sort of record. Mercy. It's not now, but it was then. In um, a house race, it's, my, it's, not even a, it's not even still a record in a house race? Oh, no. I mean, the Ossoff house race against Karen Handel was, oh, I think, right, $50 right, right. Million. Um, But importantly, Clay, so I talk get about, there. Talk about the economy. Talk about putting money, taking money out of the economy. This is oh, ridiculous. <laughs> if we I've took all the a, money we spent yeah. on campaigns and gave people stimulus on with that money, <laughs> Lord, it'd be a different story, wouldn't it? I've become a huge advocate of public campaign financing because of this reason. It it is we have probably the worst system in in the developed world. Um, but I'll tell you. So what happened is I get to I get to Congress and everybody has given it the altar. Right, that fourteen million in ten weeks came from anybody and everybody who was interested in politics. I'm then facing another election eight months away, and that's when Cantor tells me I've got to go raise. I think it was eighteen thousand. It was sixteen or eighteen thousand dollars a week or a day, and and I said, "How am I supposed to do that?" Now I'm the most junior member of Congress, right? Four hundred thirty-five out of four hundred thirty-five on no committee assignments. No lobbyists are interested in helping me. They already have, and my community has given every dime they have in a, in this race. But that was the only expectation on me. And Cantor actually said to my staffer in the room, he said, "Look, here's the problem you're going to have." Jolly's a new member of Congress. He has all these ideas. He's going to want to wake up and do legislation. He said, you have to make sure every day, instead of legislating, he focuses on raising money. And that, Clay, I bristled, and that's when I kind of knew. And what would you do? Did you, show, did you walk across the street and do call time? No, no. I Look, really? I ended it. No, 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 no. I never did. In fact, you know, the NRCC, when the 60 Minutes episode aired that that had that antidote in it. I had I didn't name names like I did tonight. And the NRCC said it never happened. And so the only press response I had during the fallout after my 60 Minutes episode was I said it was on the third floor in this room at this time. And if they'll publish their calendar, you'll see who was in the room. <laughs> and I never heard anything from them again. But look, I I I, I guess I already was a bit of a a critic of the campaign finance system, but it took serving for me to realize we got to break the whole system down and rebuild it. How much do you think that hurt you in your race in against uh, in your in your final uh, 
campaign. Yeah. So in my final race, I had been redistricted, right? I was in a 50-50 district, which I love. I I think every district should be 50-50. That's why I'm a gerrymander reform advocate. Well, trust me. This is why I'm telling you, this is why I've been excited to talk to you because it seems like all the things that as (laughs) as a Republican you support, I support as a Democrat also. You yeah, know, I yeah. did. I, I ran specifically in the district that I ran. Well, I lived in it too, but I got interested in it because it was so gerrymandered against, to, towards the Republican side that, you know, the person who was in it just didn't care, didn't show up, didn't do anything, didn't try to campaign. And I said, well, okay, then ignore me if you can. And so yeah. I ran for that reason. But, but you know, it, it it's, I, I get really excited when we can have someone on this show that I would disagree with on plenty of issues, fine. That's, you know, that's the way it's supposed to work, but can find agreement with. And I've been really pumped to be able to talk about campaign finance, gerrymandering, and I can't wait to talk about your your party stuff too in a minute. But um, like, these are, these are things that I agree with you really would change, you know, putting the power back into the hands of people instead of politicians. So, so your, your final race, you were saying you had been redistricted and what did it end up being? Yeah, So it was a district then that Obama had won by nine or 10 and generically Dems favorite by maybe three or four points. Um, So Uh look, we ended up outperforming. We, I think I lost that last race by a little more than three points, but, but two things about it. If we had had a million dollars at the end, we would have won the race. I mean, we were outspent four to one and we we were broke because I, at that point, I was such a bad Republican for Republicans. Nobody was interested in supporting right. me. I was a, a Republican in support of marriage equality and support of gun control, of campaign finance reform, of climate science research. So I didn't have the, the donor base. And after I had exposed the fundraising scandal, the word from McCarthy's office at the time was, we're only helping Jolly if control of the house is on the line. And because they didn't think control of the house was on the line, they weren't going to step in and help. Um, but uh, but very importantly, and this is where I think 50-50 districts could benefit the entire country. I wanted the ability to test my positions on issues as a Republican in a true toss-up district. Because what I wanted to be able to show my fellow Republicans at the time was Look, you can you can address issues like marriage equality and climate and guns and campaign finance. You can address it responsibly. You can address it from a conservative position. As long as you're talking about solutions and bringing people together, you can win competitive races. Instead, what gerrymandering's done is it's protected them from having to test their own ideologies and convictions. And it's why we see this identity crisis right now because the, the convictions and ideologies within the Republican Party, whatever they might be, do not reflect a consensus position of the nation, but they're protected by supermajority districts in their cases that protect Republicans, just as in Democratic cases that protect Democrats. And it's fascinating to me that I'm going to use a term that we've had trouble with on this uh, podcast, I, the, word, the term deep state. We had... We had a guest a few months ago who just lost his mind when that word was used. <laughs> um, but, but, but the people who have supported, uh, who did, who support still President Trump, that that wing of the Republican Party um, right now have, and, and Donald Trump himself, campaigned against this deep state, this you know draining of the swamp and getting rid of, and and the irony is that. The stuff that you're talking about, the $18,000 a day or else we're not going to help you or we're not going to help David Jolly unless his, his, uh, the entire house uh, control is at risk. Um, and gerrymandering, these are actually the real deep state issues, don't you think? I mean, this is how I, power ha- becomes entrenched, yeah? Th- these are the tools of the trade. And I just penned an op-ed jointly with, the, with John Updike, who's the, the head of the Open Primaries group. and. And what we did is we traced Donald Trump's threats against Republicans from the time of the election till the events of January 6th. And Clay, the threat he used to get people, Republicans, to vote against affirming the Electoral College and to believe and, and propagate the big lie, the threat he used was primaries. He was on the record. His kids were on the record <laughs> saying, right. if you're not with us, we will primary you. Well, the only reason that that tool is available is because, again, within our system, 
we've gerrymandered supermajority districts and we've closed primaries to only partisan voters. And so the only place of accountability is is for that partisan among partisan voters. And the way to get elected then is clear. You do right. the and things you, that partisans and in, appreciate. And in a lot of these districts, like you were saying, but I'm, I'm going to dumb it down for myself. A lot of these districts have been gerrymandered to the point where really all you have to do is win the primary. I oh, mean, that's it. How many... How many districts left? You mentioned that your district was, I think you said a D plus five, you know, uh, tend to swing to Democrats right, by right. five points or so. Yeah, The generally. district I ran in was R12. Um, yep. And they're, they're D35 districts. I mean, most of the districts in this country, once you win the primary, That's you're it. in. That's and it. You know. And so, so if but, you, the, but why, why would anybody change that? Who's going to change that? Why? Well, so here's, here's a- to? Yeah, so two very important points. It, we often contextualize gerrymandering for primaries as hammering incumbents. But let's flip the script and just talk about the incentive structure, right? In any walk of life, you do the things that allow you to advance and in politics to get elected and reelected. So the system is set up to reward partisanship. So those are the behaviors we see. If we were to open primaries and create 50-50 districts, the behavior of members would change because the reward structure would look differently. And and I think by doing that, whichever major party cracked the code to building a broad coalition could be a governing majority for decades to come. Now, how do we fix it? Incumbents aren't going to uh, going to put this accountability on themselves. But in about 30 states, voters can lead initiatives to change their state constitution. In Arizona, we saw independent commissions to to draw district lines devoid of political influence of politicians. We've seen similar in the state of Florida, a constitutional amendment that requires geographic compactness. In Maine, they they the voters passed ranked choice voting. We've seen right. flirtations with open primaries. So voters have a lot of power. It's just a pretty dispassionate issue. Right. Most people come to politics because of right. reproductive Not rights sexy or the at economy all. or t- yeah. They don't want to talk about electoral reform. I wanted but- to talk about money in politics throughout my whole campaign and all my consultants said, Not sexy enough. Not sexy enough. Yeah. Don't Isn't that amazing? It. Nobody votes on these issues. That's amazing. Yeah. And and so you probably saw this. There might be an issue that eighty percent of your community agrees with Clay Aiken on. But if you ask them what's going to drive you to vote, that ranks number ten. And so right. you're, you don't talk about <laughs> if it. You're yeah. lucky. So if you're lucky. So, so gosh, I have so many questions for you. What? what well, I got questions for you, you. So, <laughs> well, I will give you 30 seconds at the end. Um, what do you, what do you, um, what do you think will motivate people to, to want to do this? I mean, to, to understand, I, I just wrote down a question for later, but I'll ask it now. No, I won't. I'll wait. <laughs> I'm usually good at this. I swear to God, David. Um, <laughs> but I'm so excited about these particular issues. So, I mean, let's let's move on to, we've talked about money. We've talked about gerrymandering. Breaking the two-party stranglehold. I want to talk about that before I get into some of these other ones. Because, you know, people have tried it. It's It's difficult to do. You are making an effort right now to start a That's right. third party. Um, Sam... But tell people what it stands for. Yeah, the Serve America movement has been around about three or four years. I, I became as chairman a year ago, and it is challenging uh, this viability equation of new parties. And let's be very real about this. Let's not be naive. About once in a generation, moments come along where independent politics emerge. You can go back 100 years to the Bull Moosers. You can go to Depression-era politics, and then FDR serves four terms, and then the country says, we don't want a four-term president. They amend the Constitution. Watergate, Ross Perot, Donald Trump, we're in one of those eras right now. But what is unique about those moments, I believe, is is the moment meets you halfway, right? We've seen it since the events of January 6th. What we've tried to do at SAM over the last year exploded after January 6th because the moment started coming towards us. And here's where I think the big challenge is and and how the SAM party operates differently than most parties. Uh, Gallup was out that said 60% of the country supports a new party. But what's interesting is it's not a monolithic 60%, right? Some think we we need a more conservative Republican party. We need a Trump party. Some would say Mm -hmm. Democrats need to be more progressive. Some would say we need a moderate party. But Mm -hmm. 
what we always experiment in the new party space with is trying to find a dot on the left-right spectrum and say, here's where the majority of people are. And it never works, Clay. It never works. Okay. I, I'm so, agreeing with you because that would be my next question, but I'm, I'm fascinated. So keep going. So here's what the Serve America movement has arrived upon. And there's been a lot of trial and error. And, and having been in politics for now maybe 30 years, I love where this is and where this is going. Sam's approach is to move our politics to a different spectrum, not the left-right spectrum. Okay. Let's, let's present a big tent coalition where progressives, moderates, and conservatives are all welcome. But what we share in common, what we coalesce around, is a commitment to problem solving, to transparency, to accountability, and to electoral reform. The notion that for the issues we face today, some of the best answers are on the left, some are on the right, some are in the middle. We're not trying to moderate, right? Your ideology is a personal conviction if you're left, right, or center. We're saying bring that conviction and let's figure out how to solve problems related to healthcare, immigration, taxes, regulation, climate, and let's do so on a platform that works. What the example I give is when House Dems nearly lost the House this past November, they, they nearly lost the House and they had a, an internal meeting two or three days later that was widely reported and the progressives got upset with the moderates and the moderates got upset with the progressives. The problem is not the differing ideology. That's not a problem. That's a blessing that we have differing ideologies and we can talk about them in the United States. It's one of the great blessings we have. The problem is that we don't have a party structure that is, is built to accommodate contrasting ideologies. That's what Sam's trying to do. So if I'm a, so you're saying that if I'm a pro-choice voter, I, or I'm a pro-choice candidate or I'm a, or, or Congress member, that I could be a member of the Sam party, even though some other member in my party might be pro-life and staunchly pro-life, and we might vote completely differently on that particular issue or on legislation having to do with this stimulus bill right now. 100%. Um, so then what would be, so, so would caucuses not happen in Congress either? Would the party not caucus together? If it had a, a bunch of seats um, and and oh no, it certainly would. Together? It certainly would because what brings us together is a commitment to to solving the problems in front of the country, a commitment to to transparent politics, to electoral reform, all these things. But let me let me play out the scenario for you. Okay, let's start with the recognition that the politics from the Sun Belt to the Industrial Belt, from the East Coast to the West Coast, are different. The ideologies are different. Why is it that? I can't be a member, a viable member of the Republican Party if I'm in Manhattan or San Francisco. Why is it I can't be a viable member of the Democratic Party if I come from Pasco County, Florida? Just because the ideology of the community I represent? So first of all, what Sam recognizes is let those ideologies emerge naturally in our body politic. This was kind of the original vision of our founders. And let's create a platform where then these ideologies get worked together and meld together. So let's say you're a, you're a passionate reproductive rights advocate. Mm -hmm. All we're asking you to do is to have visibility to and to see and to understand the issues on the other side of that coin, right? So not to get too far into the politics of, of abortion rights, but Roe v. Wade set out a viability test. And that was in 1972. Within the Roe framework, is viability still the standard today? Because viability is different in 2021 than it was in 1972. Is that a legitimate policy conversation to have? Of course it is. But there's no, there's no room electorally for Democrats to have that conversation, just as there's no room on the right to have a conversation that Roe also in, establishes that fundamental reproductive right of a woman. And, and so we go to our tribal camps and we say it's all or nothing on both sides. Right. We're not solving any of these issues if that's the way our politics continue to proceed. Also, right. But aren't you asking people to think harder than they want to? 
Yes, we are. <laughs> One I mean, of my great. I mean, but, <laughs> go, I mean, go ahead. And use, I wonder where you're going, but it's the truth. I mean, the, isn't that that is? It's not just a problem with our politicians. We yeah. we are a hundred and eighty character <laughs> attention span country now, aren't we? And and we, are, we want yeah. our thoughts to be on bumper stickers. I I am in love with this whole idea. I. Agree that it's exactly what we need. I want you. I want you to think of a better catchier name. But um, but <laughs> come I'm on, we still... got Uncle Sam. Sam, uh, the Serve oh, America okay, movement. That's, okay, that's okay. Uncle but Sam. But it can't be true. the Sir, it can't be the Serve America party because then we're saps. So it's it's Sam. Oh, it's the Serve America okay. movement. I was thinking. I, mean, I feel like it just should be common, common party, common people, common good, common ground, common goals. Blah blah blah. Common. <laughs> anyway, but 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 people don't want to think like that. And and. Do you, is it, yes, I absolutely agree that it's tribalism and I get very frustrated in, within my own party sometimes because I think that some of, some of the folks, especially, you know, as a gay man, there was a period of time where I became sort of a one issue voter, but I didn't become a one issue voter and then automatically agree with everything else that the Democratic Party um, exactly stood for. Right. But there are a whole bunch, I would, I would say that I'm sort of in the minority there, um, there are a whole bunch of people who see that one issue, whether it be gay rights, whether it be, I mean, it's never really, by the way, it's never really the economic stuff that, that is one, people are one issue voters on. It's always the social stuff, right? But they become that yeah. one issue voter and then they just automatically prescribe to everything else that the party says. It's sort of what they folks have done with, you know, with Trump. They like That's something right. about him. I'm not sure exactly what it is for each person. It may be different. But once they did, they have sworn by every stupid thing that came That's out of right. his mouth. And and it sounds like in a di- you're this is paradigm shifting. And Completely. you seem to have a lot of hope that people are ready to have their paradigm shifted. Well, so I'm an I'm a Pollyanna. I'm an optimist. I'm never gonna mm-hmm. give up. I tried to quit politics three times and it never works. So part of it is this is just the you know, the yoke I'll carry for, for the rest of my life. I'm committed to this. I believe in it. I'm passionate about it. I do think we're in one of those moments, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you two things. When I got this question the other night from somebody who said, is it really possible? I said, well, if we don't try, it's never going to happen. And I'm not willing to right. quit because that means the others, the other side wins. And I'm not willing to let that happen. The, the other thing I will tell you to put in perspective for new party politics a new party is not going to supplant or replace the Democrats or the Republicans. They have a rich history. They have a rich future ahead of them. And they are the home for people who, for whom ideology informs their political association, right? If you are dogmatic about progressive issues, you're a Democrat. You, you might have these wranglings within the party over the Bernie wing and whatever, and if you're a hardcore conservative, well, you're a Republican and, and you're part of this identity crisis about what the Republican Party means today. But Clay, we're talking about registered voters now who are approaching and surpassing in some states 40, even 50 percent who are rejecting that approach to politics, who are saying ideology is not the most important thing for me. And what they're saying is perhaps what informs my political associations is actually just a government that works, that's willing to work together and to solve the problems we face. And, and that goes back to the same model, that sometimes those solutions are left, right, sometimes they're middle, but a lot of the electorate just wants the problem solved. They don't care what the ideological underpinning of the solution is. That's what we're trying gotta, to operate. But to build this movement, yeah. you have to get, you have to, you're, agreed, you won't supplant Either one of those that have been around for, you know, the, the youngest for 150 years. But you've got to move people from those parties in order to build the movement, right? So you've got to be yeah. able to, to come to somebody like me and say, I know that you are progressive on economic issues and these issues and conservative on these. But come, and how, how do you plan to do that? How are you able to get someone who ran on a Democrat ticket or who has been a lifelong Republican to say, you know what, I'm going to do what David Jolly did and I'm going to take a, take a leap here and join something that I may never, we may never be in the majority in my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, It's a great question. And I would say if we're, 
honest with ourselves, I think most of us would have to acknowledge that a coalition like Sam or like another, but built on those principles, is more welcoming of your personal ideologies than either the two major parties right now. We, we are truly a big tent. So that is the reason why. The hindrance I think most people face is they don't believe in the viability. And that's where, that's, that's my job as the chairman of the Serve America movement is to create viability. How do we do that? Part of it is there is no political infrastructure for a problem-solving coalition. There's not even one for a moderate coalition if you stick with ideology. There is infrastructure for the two major parties. So we have to build an infrastructure. That, that includes financing, that includes polling, that includes recruiting, that includes media, the whole thing. You've got to build an infrastructure around this. And then to build a party, we have to do two things at the same time. We have to recruit and run and win in local races, which we have successfully done in New York and Connecticut, and we're now expanding to three or four other states in this next cycle. We also, at the same time, while we're building from the bottom up, we need some high-profile wins to convince voters that this is a legitimate option for you. How, when people how register you do to that vote, if you ain't raising money. <laughs> well, so right, how you I mean, do that if you ain't doing call time, David. <laughs> these, 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 these are these are no small problems. What I will tell you <laughs> is unsolicited donations into Sam have gone up. Uh, you know, our traffic's gone up two thousand percent. Our unsolicited donations have probably gone up five thousand percent in the last forty-five days. Because oh, wow. people are saying we want this. Now, I can tell you this as well. You understand the power of marketing and, and advertising. If I get this message out, last night on MSNBC, we were talking about new parties on with Brian Williams. And it wasn't an opportunity for me for, to, to give the pitch for Sam, right? But we were talking about new parties like Sam in the context of the current political environment. When people hear the message, they begin to act with their with their traffic, with their clicks, right. with their money. And so part of it is we've got to do that. That's also why a high-profile candidacy could be a very powerful tool for new party politics. This episode is sponsored by Apostrophe, a prescription skincare company for people that are ready to take their acne seriously. The prescription acne treatment really works, but it's kind of a pain to get. You got to take time off work. You got to go see a doctor. You got to sit in line at the pharmacy. This is all until Apostrophe came along. Now, Apostrophe makes it so easy to see a board-certified dermatologist online, and you're going to get treated immediately, and all your medications are going to come straight to your home. All you got to do is fill out Apostrophe's online questionnaire, and you tell them about your skin concerns, some medical history, snap a few selfies, and your dermatologist will get back to you with a customized treatment plan that's made just for you. The best part, okay, is that Apostrophe doesn't just offer the topical stuff. They have the oral medications too. And you know that you can treat your acne from the inside out or the outside in. Apostrophe treats acne and they can also help you um, hit some of your other skincare goals like reducing redness, wrinkles, even dark spots. Now, I'm going to admit straight up, I was not lucky in high school because I got picked on for a hundred thousand things. But I guess God just didn't want to give me another problem. So I actually lucked out and I didn't have too much trouble with acne. But I'll say this, the people who did, the friends of mine who did, they had trouble with it. And some of the medications that they got prescribed from their actually actual doctors worked so much more than the stuff you can buy at the grocery store. So apostrophe can get that stuff for you. And then if you're like me and you didn't necessarily have acne in high school or middle school, but you know... You're starting to see some lines around your eyes. Not that I have any of those, but, you know, <clears throat> maybe I do. Um, apostrophe can help you take care of all of that stuff, too. So at Apostrophe, it's totally nice to know that you've got a real dermatologist. Your plan is totally customized just for what you want to fix, and you don't even have to schedule an appointment. You don't have to go to the pharmacy. All that stuff comes straight to you. And their products, hey, they actually feel great on your skin. They just absorb nicely, and they've got all the ingredients that you know will work. Get $15 off your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash heck. And use our code word, heck. This code is only available to our listeners. Again, because who else would choose that code? To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash heck and click begin visit. Then use your code, heck, at sign up and you'll get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash 
heck, and use that code, heck, to get your dermatology visit for $15 off or look for the link in our show notes. And we really thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. When you said infrastructure earlier, you were talking about the logistics of even getting on ballots. I mean, that's, what does that take in, a, in like, yeah. in a, I don't even know what it takes in my state, but in North, in Nebraska, I mean, in any of these states to get somebody on a ballot, what is it? I mean, there's, what do you have to do? Yeah, so. How do, how do the libertarians have people on every single ballot in this country, even though they ain't never won anything? Because they've been at it a long time. So okay. we have a system of federalism, <laughs> right? So all 50 states are 50 different rules. So a new party has to crack the code in all 50 states. And listen, let's be honest, the R's and D's have put up some big hurdles. In the state of New York, you ready for this? And, and they change the rules when it's not working for them. In the state of New York, Sam ran a, a unity ticket for governor and lieutenant governor, Democratic mayor mm-hmm. from Syracuse, a Republican mayor from the village of Pelham. They now passed. let me let me, let me sure. I want to pause you just for a second. You said Sam ran a ticket, Democrat mayor from uh oh god, I've already missed that part. But from the, Syracuse, from, yeah. from Syracuse. But you still put their party in front of their name. So are the are people not registering to Sam and becoming Sam um when they run? Can they maintain their other party affiliation? So this is where every state's different. And so you, mm-hmm. New York is a unique case where what happens is you run and if you pass a threshold, you then get to claim party status for a party. So uh, in this case- so just New York. Yeah. So New York is different than Connecticut, different from Florida and so forth. So our unity ticket passed that threshold and we were granted four years of party status. That gives us certain campaign finance matching privileges. Okay. It gives us automatic ballot access to races. So what did Cuomo and the legislature do? They changed the rules. And as of well, about six weeks ago, <laughs> about six weeks ago, <laughs> they took the parties in the state of New York from eight down to four. Florida has different challenges. I could sign up the Sam party tonight with three signatures and some bylaws, but it doesn't give me ballot access. I've got to go get 70 or 80 or 100,000 signatures to get ballot access. But like so the challenges are real. I ain't never seen them win nothing so, in my but life, but here's they're on why, every state. Here's why it works, Clay. Once you qualify, the key is to keep qualified. So uh. so take, take those parties in New York that kept their status. The um, Working Families Party, for instance, kept their status. Mm-hmm. The way they the did it. too damn high party. The way they keep their status is they nominate Biden or Trump. And and so huh. if you're a New York voter, you see Biden as the Democratic nominee, but you see Biden as the Working Families nominee. All the Working Families Party has to do is get a hundred something thousand people to choose Biden on their line than the Dems and they get to keep it. Got it. So so you have to so you're having to be a magician figuring out all of the logistics <laughs> for all of those states also. We got um, a big team. I, we got people a lot smarter than I am at this. What, what about those folks who say, I mean, and I, I kind of know what the, the, the stock answer is, but I want to know like the real one. <laughs> the people who say, if you are a Republican or former Republican who is starting this movement and it is in response to a major fracturing on the Republican side, Hell, Trump might be a, do his own third part. Who knows? That Sam is only going to probably attract Republicans, and therefore it will do more to help elect Democrats than it will to to bridge some sort of divide. Where you stand depends on where you sit, because I get exactly the opposite of that just as often. That oh, Jolly's on oh, MSNBC. Really? If he runs for governor of the state of Florida as an independent, he's going to split the Democrats and hand the governor's mansion back to. The Republicans, um, but but you hit on something interesting, which is okay. which is this ideology premise to new parties. I don't think the answer for conservatives is to start a new conservative party because for that exact reason, I don't think it works. What we're doing at Sam is totally different, and it's kind of devoid of of as I mentioned, trying to stick a dot somewhere on that left right spectrum. Isn't that what? Isn't that what these parties initially were about anyway? I mean, Republicans weren't about pro-life or pro-gun or anti-marriage equality. And Democrats weren't about pro-choice and anti-gun and pro... <laughs> that, they were about the not ideology so much as philosophy. Republicans believed in that, that a smaller... Correct me if I'm wrong, that a, for a while, that a smaller government 
um, would help grow the middle class, less restrictions, less regulation, less, less taxes. And Democrats believed in the ability and the power of government to do those things and help those, those things uh, become um, a reality. That's where they started. They have become ideological. So are you really even changing the spectrum or are you just kind of taking it back to where the principles of the thing in the first place? That, you know, our, our party is not about a specific ideology other than we believe that government should work for the people instead of yeah. for the politicians. Yeah, look, I, I love that question because I think in many ways the latter. I mean, it was just in the late 90s when the Republican Party still had uh, what you would call liberal New England Republicans. Um, right. And you had Gingrich Southern conservatives in the same tent. Um, and Democrats had blue dog Democrats. And what we've seen as a result of, again, I think the electoral reform issues here are real and significant because as the, as the major parties have moved to protect their own hold on power, they have forced these behaviors to be more partisan. And, and it's created a more tribal culture. And unfortunately, I do worry about what it means for us culturally as a nation. I mean, that the resentment, the lack of trust that we talked about between members of Congress, I think now exists between fellow Americans mm -hmm. a lot based on your zip code. Well, I mean, it, based on your zip code, based on your Facebook profile, based on your yeah. opinion on one particular, it, it blows my mind to open up Twitter or to open up any, any turn on any news at all and see people being, I don't like to use, I mean, I don't like cancel culture. We've talked about that a lot on the show too, but, but the idea that people can make snap judgments about someone based on one thing they tweeted or one thing they said. And we've gotten to a place, and, and President Obama told people to, like, cut the crap and stop this a few years ago, but nobody listened to him, where we need to stop expecting perfection from everyone. And that, that sort of sounds to me like a, a, a basic tenet of what Sam is trying to do, which is, we don't expect you to agree with us on everything. Um, if you disagree on this particular thing, that's fine. You're still a part of the team. You don't have to, you know, vote along with us. But on both sides, both the Republican and the Democrat side, if if you dare, I mean, I, I think I, I think last week I heard a lot of crap being talked about Kirsten Cinema because she dared to say that the $15 minimum wage shouldn't be a part of the stimulus bill. Um, right. You know, as a progressive, I'd like to see a $15 minimum wage, but I don't think she was against it. I think she was just against it being as a part of that bill. Lord, she got hit a lot from the left. <laughs> um, right. And and I, could, I can't tell you how many times I opened up Twitter and saw someone say, just go ahead and switch to the Republican Party. <laughs> there is a lot of like, really? Is that what you want? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I feel like at some point somebody's going to have to say, "Fine, if that's what you want, that's what I'll do." Yeah, and see yeah. what you get. Like, keep me, take me as I am, or don't take me at all. Um, is there any way outside of this third party idea that that even we can change the way that Republicans deal with their own people and dem? Richard Burr, who I disagree with on a whole bunch of stuff, but God bless him. He stood up. He yeah. voted to end Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And he sometimes, and I've told people, I would rather have a Republican who occasionally will surprise me and vote to convict the president when I think it's absolutely the right thing to do than a Democrat who doesn't even have a brain to make their own decisions, but just does what the leadership tells them to do. Yeah, you know, I I said recently on on one of the MSNBC platforms that you know Adam Kinzinger deserves our respect and our gratitude this week for what he's done, and it was remarkable how many people came back at me and said, "No, he doesn't," because look at everything he did before, mm -hmm, and exactly. and I get it, right? We all get that. I, I understand. How dare that. we? How dare <laughs> we say Liz Cheney is honorable because of <laughs> right. all the things her dad did and other? Well, you yeah. know what? Then if the, if if that's what you want, and that's I think that's one of the problems with I mean that's what Steve Bannon told Donald Trump, don't try to moderate because you'll never satisfy people on the left no matter what you do. So just play to your base. Yeah, no, that's Maybe exactly Adam right. Kinzinger should be your first nominee for something. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know when we were talking about the fifty fifty district I was in, the the rules of the game politically there are not to try to win over 
people in a 50-50 district. It's to turn out your partisans. Yeah. That's that's the way the science works in this. And, you know, to, to Obama's comments and what you're referring to, is there is there something more we can do? There is so much of this on our own shoulders as a country and as a culture. And what we do know, an incredible tool in politics going back well over 100 years has been the framing of negative partisanship, right? If I can tag you, Clay, as a crazy liberal Democrat who's not fit for the good people of North Carolina, that works. If I it sure as hell did. It, <laughs> but but if, I, if I were to get out and say, look, I think my opinion on the environment is better than Clay's, that doesn't work. And, and what's happened in the really current environment- Do you really think that's true? Or do you think that they, oh, people absolutely. have been told- Oh, 100%. When's the last time someone tried it? I feel I like if I saw someone try it, I'd be like, I tell you, the last time I saw someone try it was Bernie Sanders when he said, I don't give a damn about your emails. And I think he earned a lot of people's yeah, respect yeah. because he thought, you know what? We thought, you know what? He's not playing bullshit games. He's not poll yeah, testing. Yeah. And Donald Trump, for all his insanity, I mean, no one can say he poll tested anything. Right. Right, but let, he let's, sure as shit didn't poll test. But he used <laughs> negative partisanship every yeah, single yeah, waking moment. And here's what I would say about the era we're in. And and you know, Obama actually said one of the things he worried about most was was the American media platforms allow for this type of activity. And he worried not because of the freedom of speech behind it all, but that there really wasn't a way to get our arms around it, to regulate it, nor should there be. And so if you take the principle that negative partisanship works, we now have major media platforms that sell that every day, right? Where it used to just be campaign commercials, now it's part of our daily news platforms. And now mm -hmm. we each have a social media platform where we get to engage in it ourselves. And we get to throw it out there just as much as those politicians used to. And we, and we get the same right. reward, <laughs> right? We, we get the dopamine triggers because people say, yeah, that's great. Click, 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 click. They're clicking on negative partisanship. And my hope is in the long lens of kind of this, this new media revolution we're in, that it hits an apex and then it starts to cool. Because I don't know how much more we can take of this uh, as a mm -hmm. culture. I wonder if there if that ends up being the solution. There is a breaking point. I mean, addicts have to hit rock bottom before they can come up. I swear, I thought we had, um, <laughs> but but I'm I'm convinced, and I'm I'm starting to worry that we haven't. Um, I want to get to questions from our listeners because people sent them in, but I am more excited about what I want to talk to you about tonight. <laughs> um, I, I do want to ask. We've talked about three things: money and politics, gerrymandering. And, and opening up or, or trying to break this stranglehold on, um, on, on two powerhouse parties being the only choices. Right. If you could only choose one, because this, I don't know the answer to this. I ask myself all the time, which of these would be the most important to go first with? There's certainly, I think, a trickle-down effect that each one of them could have on the other. But if you could only choose one, either getting all money out of politics introducing third and fourth parties and other options or getting rid of partisan gerrymandering what do you think should what do you think would be the one to go first what do you think would would be the one that would yeah. affect the other changes i agree with you it's kind of a domino you do a change to any one of them it affects all of them but hands right. down not just generic gerrymandering reform but the implementation of as many 50-50 districts as possible Ooh, would I'm forever change political behavior. We would never That's talk about term limits again. <laughs> we wouldn't That's need them. Exactly. Because yeah. it would restore the ability of voters to truly choose who they wanted to represent them. And, you know, very importantly, there are there are some voting rights protections that would be involved in this. I'm not suggesting we obliterate those. There are also some natural demographic uh, political communities, right? There's a place, I think, I think it's a Harlem district that's a D plus 46. And in deep mm. red Texas, Hinterlane has like a, an R plus 43. We're not going to change those. right? But right. I once did kind of a back of the napkin math when I was sitting in Congress in the middle of the night, one night during a session. And I think we could change, we could get legitimate 50-50 districts in about 300 seats in the House. The Congress would change forever. 
So, so you're actually talking about, I mean, not to turn a bad word, a good, a bad word, good, but to potentially gerrymander to to specifically make that goal a 50, 50. That's right. So a lot of the fair districts reforms focus on geographic compactness, right? We're trained Mm -hmm. to not like squiggly lines from the time we're in elementary school. I'm suggesting maybe we bring back some squiggly lines, but what we write into these state constitutions are electoral competitiveness so that electoral competitiveness becomes the fairness test. We have decided, the reform movement has decided that fairness of districts has to be geography. I don't disagree with that, but I'll tell you what happened in Florida. It kicked out the four most moderate members of the Florida delegation. Myself, Gwen Graham, Carlos Corbello, Patrick Murphy, Ileana ross Leighton. Our state delegation became more partisan, not less, because geography actually squeezed out the moderates. I well, I would suggest I'm sitting right here in one of the most gerrymandered states in the country now, and it wasn't as I grew up. So I'm with you on that. Yeah, yeah. So I would suggest again, accommodating for Voting Rights Act protections. We actually write into the law electoral competitiveness has to be a factor in map drawing. Well, that was the answer I was hoping you'd give. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, let's move on to some of our questions from um, listeners. People can email questions to our guests uh, every week or or to us for our guests every week at politic pot got it you've gotten me so flustered and excited at podcasts at politicon.com or you can send them to us on Twitter or Instagram at politicon um, and we have several people who wrote in for you um, Joshua from Santa Fe New Mexico asked after the rancor of the election why should either side want to work with the other yeah, look, that's a that's a very good question, and it's one of those moments where I, I I try to withhold personal judgment on people. I think we all should in all walks of life, but I will say if you run for office and you hold public office, you hold the public trust, and you are open for for the people's judgment. And I think in moments like this, and we've seen many of these moments during the Trump era, we just have to make moral judgments on the behaviors of our elected officials that we saw preceding the events of January 6th and since. And it's reasonable to suggest how can we possibly work together? I think it creates an opportunity. And I think Joe Biden sees that opportunity, whether he can pull it off or not. I think he truly believes that there's a certain calling of history right now in this moment for him to try to bind the wounds of our broken partisanship and not bring everybody along, but bring enough of us along that there's consensus around working together. I, I want to share his optimism. If you reach across the aisle, you need somebody to reach you halfway back. And I don't know if we're going to see that. What do you, what would you agree with him? What would you agree or disagree with him on right now? You were in Congress. Oh, I, I agree on a, a lot of – look, what, what drew me to the Republican Party were more some, some constitutional premises uh, around – you know, when, when Obama issued the four executive orders on immigration, he acknowledged he didn't know if he had that power. I don't think he did. I don't mm-hmm. think any president, a Republican president, didn't. But I also think that Congress has a constitutional responsibility to address the problem through legislation, and that's where Republicans failed. So disagreeing some areas with Biden is – the use of executive authority, but that's not unique to him. That's been every every modern president. I think he has an opportunity around the, the COVID vaccine, around the pandemic, and around the economic recovery to, to try to bring enough of the nation together. That is where, though, I am suspicious of the leaders of today's Republican Party, that they're not willing to give Biden that win. Because much like McConnell said about, about Obama, Republicans' plan is to try to make Biden a one-term president and to take back the House in two years, and they can't do that if they elevate Biden's favorability or give Democrats a legislative win. And well, and I agree with you. In fairness, though, Democrats' goal was to make <laughs> Bush and Trump a one-term president too. And I mean, Absolutely. neither party wants to give the other side a win. So that's right. Um, Oren from uh, Savannah, Georgia, asks. If your new party is successful, how can it avoid corporate capture? Oh, look, that's, I mean, that's a fantastic question. I think we would have to honor the principles of transparency and accountability, specifically in the campaign finance reform space. We have <clears throat> endorsed many of the voter-led campaign finance reform initiatives that have been on state ballots in this last cycle. It's one of the, it's one of the um, tenets of our platform. 
that is not around ideology, but in, within the reform platform. And look, we would always face, I think any party, as you, as you get into the place of holding power, you have to be able to test yourself against your own convictions. It's where I think we've seen the major parties fall and where I would hope under, under my leadership, we wouldn't, but that would be a challenge. Now, I wouldn't say the way the SAM party is organized, that we would be captured by corporate America. We're just not going to be an appealing uh, subject for them. But we could be captured by other political forces and coalitions that, that we don't necessarily see us succumbing to. And that's the challenge of political leadership. Orrin, he just told you he ain't doing call time. So <laughs> he ain't <laughs> calling no certain. corporate people. <laughs> um, Carlos, last one. Carlos from Salt Lake City asks, Normal people feel like participating in politics might destroy their jobs, if not their families. Is that a reasonable fear? 100%. And, and the one credit I will give to people, Clay, like you and others who put yourself on the ballot, it's one, it's not easy. You open yourself up to criticism, to certainly commendation from some, but here's Here's an example I give in any walk of life, whatever your profession, whatever your career, if you were to apply some political analysis to it, your fave, unfave, your favorability, unfavorability rating in the private sector is probably somewhere 90, 10, right? You do the things within your community, within your profession, within your church, whatever it might be. You build friends, you build a network, you don't piss people off. That's just the natural the natural way that civilized people behave. And so your fave unfave is 90, 10, you get into politics and you're lucky if it's 50, 50. And, Mm -hmm. and that actually sticks with you. I, I will tell you something that I, I never anticipated experiencing that my predecessor in office that I worked with, he actually passed away in office. So I didn't see him live in his community after he served. It is a, a, Hard might be the right word, but it's an unusual experience to be a former member in your hometown. You <laughs> you are still seen through a 50-50 fave-unfave. There are people who still feel like they can publicly criticize you. There are people who still think you, you're, you're in office and can help them. Um, your life changes. And, and then you do open yourself up to legitimate security threats, many that we saw on January 6th. Um, but even in one's home community, a lot of public officials at any level often face uh, face significant real security threats that have an impact on your family. When I, I ran, I knew that going in that I was going to, you know, I made the decision, if you want to jump into this, you have to recognize that whatever whatever career you had singing before, probably cut in half. Um, I mean, I was... yeah somewhat yeah. fortunate to have started on a show where I got criticized on national TV in front of 40 million people every single week and then jumped right into a tabloid scenario where I got embarrassed in the rags all the time. So my skin was very thick. Yeah. But I'll tell you, after I after my campaign, I'll never forget, I can totally relive this situation if I close my eyes and think about it. Right after my campaign was over, um, I... I had to fly to Florida for something and I connected through Atlanta and I walked into the Delta Sky Club um, at Atlanta's airport in between my flights and I walked up to the desk and the lady who greeted me said, oh my God, Clay Aiken, I love you. I, I mean, I used to, I, I used to love you. And I said, well, what do you mean you used to? She said, I just can't support you anymore now that you're a Democrat. And I had a nice conversation with her. I had a re- I mean, I had lots of nice conversations with people, even throughout the campaign, who loved to talk to me, but told me after the sweetest conversation and a photo with me and getting me to sign something, they would still tell me <laughs> that they couldn't like me. They couldn't like me anymore. And the sad thing is, I mean, I'm laughing at it too now, and you we laugh at it. But she was dead serious. Oh, she yeah. was nice. She was yeah. friendly. She was from Atlanta. Of course, she was going to be Ye- sweet. But she was dead serious. She could not like me anymore because and you I was hit, a Democrat. You hit on such an interesting thing, Clay, that we need in politics, which is we need that personal response to that moment, right? The fact that that maybe that it hurts your feelings, but that you desire to try to address their concern. And that mm. was my problem. I I, you know, 
I could never get my head around how to serve 700,000 people when the phones were ringing all day and you're getting mail and this issue, because I wanted everybody's concern to be most important. And, mm-hmm. and the unfortunate thing in today's politics is the most successful politicians out there don't listen to those conversations. They ignore them. They don't let those conversations matter to them because they just have to operate on this fundraising scale and they go on TV and get the message out that's going to get enough votes. And they've, they, I, I can think of numerous politicians that have been able to turn off that very human response in situations like that. And they're the successful ones. I am, I mean, I don't even know where to go. You're right. But I, I got to say, I'll ask you the same question I've asked everybody. And I and I think I know where your answer will head and I will agree with it as I have with most everything else you've said tonight. But how the heck are we going to get along? Yeah. So that's where the, the calling of the moment is on us. Um, and the question is, how can we do it collectively? We... We have a political system that has produced this type of leadership, but we reward it with our votes. And at some point, collectively, we have to make a decision that we're changing directions. Some of that, as I mentioned, in the very dispassionate space of electoral reforms would allow us to do that more. But some of it is speaking out on, look, we can condemn behaviors in elected officials. We can condemn behaviors in our politics while still loving our brother and our sister and the people we might even be condemning in that moment. We can speak out about this stuff, and we have to. Um, but we can't let it break who we are as a people. And and that's what I think is new in the last four or five years. And what I hope, kind of in the awesome power of the bully pulpit, as the tone has shifted, maybe the temperature will dial down and we'll realize that that the relationships that really bring us together, the love that binds us together has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with a shared human experience. And that is what will sustain us through this broken chapter in our politics. Well, David, if you can figure out how to put that on a bumper sticker, then I think you guys (laughs) will do very well (laughs) when you run. That's just the problem. But I agree with, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you, like I said, how much I... Um, have looked forward to talking about all of this because it's really, after running, these are the things that I think have to change also. And I'm thrilled that that you're working on it. I'm thrilled that, that Sam is working on it. Give me a call. Let me help out somehow because I think that what you're doing is um, much, much needed. And tell people this website they can go to. to how, do, how do we find you if we want to learn more? Yeah, so for Sam, check out joinsam.org, or we have a content-driven site at samstudio.org. I've got a website at at uh, davidjolly.com. You can you can reach me there. Look, we need whether Sam's the right flavor for your politics or not. What we do need is a broad coalition of reform-minded people, and I I gotta imagine the followers of your politics, the listeners of this podcast. We're largely in agreement around a lot of these reform issues. So let's all be a part of the solution here. Joinsam.org, davidjolly.com. Check those out. Uh, David Jolly, thank you so much for being with us this week. Next week um, is actually our, for you you folks listening, next week is actually our 52nd episode, our one-year anniversary, our final. We've made it all the way around the sun in my house um office uh, now and so um uh next week is a very special episode that i am so excited about because my congressman who's been my congressman since i was um in second grade is going to be joining us um and it's really a special anniversary edition treat for me congressman david price will be joining us next week. You can send your questions to him at Politicon on Twitter or Instagram or podcasts at Politicon.com. David Jolly, thank you so much for being with us this week, and we will see you all next week.